continue in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Unassailable providence. Unassailable providence. And the point that I want you to get today is this, that God's providence will accomplish his plan of redemption. Very simple. God's providence will accomplish his plan of redemption. And so that second word there, providence, is what does that mean? It's a big word, big theological word. I paid a lot of money to learn what that word meant. Go to seminary. But you can learn it today from me, and you don't have to go to seminary. Isn't that wonderful? But today, as we begin, I don't have a bunch of funny pictures like I had last week. Today, what I need you to do, actually, this is kind of funny. I need you to put on your thinking cap, okay? So put on your thinking cap. You see, Linda came in with her thinking cap on already. So she's got her thinking cap on, and so does Revet, Miss Revet. Jason, I don't know what to call his cap. Um, but you need to think, okay? And, and I, I talk about this with my wife sometimes. You know, I, I need you. I'm responsible to feed you guys, and I can't treat you like, you don't have an intelligence that, that all you need is warm fuzzies. I need you to have understanding, theological understanding, so that your faith will be strengthened. And the word providence is not found anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> but it's an important concept that we should learn. Um, Jai Packer, a great author, great man of God, um, and, and these definitions are taken from older catechisms, like I think this is the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a teaching tool used to teach doctrine. Um, but this is the definition that he gives. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the Creator, according to His own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves Himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed ends. So he's keeping everything alive. He involves himself in everything that's happening, directing everything to his end, what he would like to see accomplished. John MacArthur, in his systematic theology, he's probably more Richard Mayhew, but um, he, this is his shortened definition. Divine providence is God's preserving his creation operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. Right? So you can see how that's very similar to the previous definition, which is taken from a very you know, old catechism. Right? So it's just simplifying things so that it's more easily understood. Now, as I look at the word providence, if you think about theological terms, one, thing, one question I have is this, is what's the difference between sovereignty and providence, right? Because it's easy to get those two things confused. There, there is a difference. And John Piper helps us here. Um, if you never look, John Piper has a podcast where he answers difficult questions that people put out there for him. And he's got it's the gobs of them, right? If you just have a question, it's kind of like gotquestions.org, but it's John Piper. And this is his response to the difference between sovereignty and and providence. He says this, God's sovereignty is his right and power, right? His right. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the sovereign of the universe. Therefore, he has the authority. He has the right, and not only does he have the right, but he has the power to do 
whatever he chooses to do. God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Job 42, 22, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But he says this, but, but notice now that, that nothing in that definition refers to God's wisdom or God's plans. And that's where, that's where we find the difference. And so you, you kind of tease out God's right, his authority, his power to, to his plans, his wisdom, and how he carries that out. Sovereignty is just right and power. You have the right and you have the power to do what you decide to do. When he decides to do a thing, he does it. And no one can stop him. This is sovereignty. Okay, so that's what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is you have the right and you have the power to do what you want to do. Providence, again, is God's preserving his creation, operating in every... It's how he operates in the events of history, directing everything to his appointed end. So my question then is what's appointed, appointed in is he has this eternal plan that he's working out. He has a plan that he wants to accomplish. And so we have to put eternal decree and plan in there. So when we you know, look at these all separate here, sovereignty is God's right and power to bring forth. Well, let me back up a little bit. I, I want to tease this out, and I should have put this slide after the next one, okay? Let me go forward, make it easier, right? So the point today is God's providence will accomplish his, what, plan of redemption. So as we look at these three together, go backwards here, God's right and power to bring forth the Messiah in his plan of redemption, God's wise working in and through his creation to bring the Messiah into the world, his eternal plan is his predetermined order of events, which we now know is history, right? So in God's eternal degree, he decided that he would send forth a Messiah. This was before anything ever happened. Jesus Christ, Christ coming to the world isn't plan B, friends. It's his initial predetermined plan. He has the authority and the power to bring the Messiah in. His providence is how he ordered the events of history to accomplish the purpose that he wanted to accomplish. Are we straight there? You thinking caps are still on? Is the light bulb still shining in your thinking cap so that I know that you're awake? The point today, God's providence will accomplish his plan of redemption. His plan of redemption began way back at the beginning. I say this all the time. This is the proto-evangelia. This is the, the first gospel. The first gospel was given to Adam and Eve after they sinned. And he's telling the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours, and he will crush your head. When did Jesus Christ crush the head of the serpent? On the cross, right? On the cross. Right? So we have this eternal plan that's revealed, right? We know from Scripture that Jesus Christ is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So God has this eternal plan to send the Messiah. And so as we, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a graphic thinker, okay, right? I'm a graphic thinker. We have the eternal plan of God. Sovereignty is his right, his power. And then how that works out in history, the history of us, humanity, that is his providence. And so when we think about God's redemptive plan, we've, we've already talked about this, right? You can trace from the Garden of Eden to the Garden in Heaven, right? We're going from garden to garden. That's why I love the Bible. I love gardens, right? 
Garden to garden. Yeah. Hope to have dirty hands for all eternity. Garden to garden. All right, but it's crucial to Matthew's gospel. We've seen this already is what? It's Abraham and the line of the Messiah, right? Literally, the, the Bible story, the redemptive story, and it begins with Adam and Eve, and then we trace it through Seth and Noah, through his descendant Shem, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And Judah, Perez, and Ruth, David, right? So Abraham to David to Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And so another way to look at the Bible is the story of good, God versus evil, but Satan. And Satan's trying to destroy the line of the Messiah all the way through. But God's providence is unassailable. It will come to pass. God's promise, providence will accomplish his plan of redemption. And so we see in this story here, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, that Herod tried to assail God's plan of redemption, and he failed, right? Because God is constantly working in history, in the events of humanity, to accomplish the purposes that he wants to accomplish. And so as we look at this story, the first thing we see is an Egyptian escape. An Egyptian escape. This is the beginning of the passage that we're looking at this morning. When they had gone, who was they? They are the the Magi, those magic men that we looked at last week. When the Magi had gone... An angel of the Lord, again, I believe Gabriel, it's my opinion, it's not there, but I think it's, my, it's that's who I think it is. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so right there at the beginning, we had this issue of dreams. And again, I put this website up here for you to look at, gotdreams.org. If you take a picture of that, I'll take you right to the website. Um, I'm not going to spend a long time on dreams, but I do need to address it today because people talk about dreams. I think people come into the church and say, Pastor, I had a dream this past week. I want to tell you about it um, because I believe it's from God. Well, hey, tell me about it. Okay. I would say this about dreams. If you are somebody who... Is, is, is into dreams, okay? Um, again, last week I mentioned that all these dreams that are happening come after 400 years of silence, and God is bringing new revelation into the picture, beginning with John the Baptist and then Jesus. So this is an amazing time of revelation coming from God. It's a different thing going on here. Uh, we have God's, I believe, completed revelation in the Scripture. But nonetheless, I mean, people talk about dreams, we look at, in the Bible, dreams weren't sought. I mean, people weren't out, they weren't out to have a dream, right? Dreams happened. I think Joseph laid down that night thinking, God, give me a dream to tell me what to do next. I think we're told in Scripture what? To ask God for wisdom, right? We ask God for wisdom, and then he gives it to us. They were not sought, they were clear. There wasn't anything unclear in the text there, was it? Hey, get up. Take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. It's very clear. So they're not sought, they're clear, and they can be subjective. That's the problem. They can be subjective. When people tell me about their dreams, I was joking with the ladies of Bible study last week, week four. I fell asleep. I'm bringing up the chosen again, guys. I'm sorry. I just, it just happened to be this way. So I took some cold medicine. 
Went upstairs to lay down, started watching The Chosen. I fall asleep, and guess who I dreamed about? I dreamed about Jesus, right? Jesus is in my dream. <laughs> and they're like, oh, see, he's trying to take something. It's funny because I was in a house that was messy, and Jesus was coming to visit, and I couldn't get the house cleaned up fast enough. So that could be something pretty big there. But dreams um, were clear, they're subjective, and they must be acted on carefully, Right? When somebody tells me they have, they're having a dream and they're going to do this, I'm like, please, just be careful. Get wisdom from other people if you're going to move forward based on a dream. So, we have this Egyptian escape. Why Egypt? Why did they go to Egypt? I thought Egypt was the dark country in the south. We came out of Egypt. We're enslaved down there. Why would we go, why would we go back down to Egypt? Well, at that time, Egypt was on good terms with the people from the north there. There were Jewish uh, there were groups, uh, colonies, if you will, uh, of Jewish people living in Egypt for various reasons. And so it was a logical place for Joseph to take his family down in to Egypt. So guess what Joseph did? He just hemmed and hawed and tried to make a decision. No, he got up, okay? He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. We don't know how long that was. Most guys, most scholars, uh, guys or girls, ladies could run out too, but most scholars who write on this think it's you know, a year, maybe two at the most, okay, that they were down there. I'm not going to go into the, the date of Herod's death and when Christ was actually born, and you know, that's another conversation. But he stayed there until the death of Herod. And so here we have this fulfillment. Okay, so we're going to have in each of the points that I have for you, the Egyptian escape and then the insane infanticide and then the return, there is, it's, going to be, uh, it's going to be capped by this prophetic statement given by Matthew. Again, Matthew is drawing on Old Testament texts because he's writing to a Jewish audience, and he wants the Jewish audience to understand, look, this Messiah, he's legit, right? He's from the line of David, and I'm going to show you how these prophecies from the Old Testament are fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at these fulfillments of prophecy from Matthew, it's not necessarily like a one-for-one prophecy fulfillment. For instance, uh, you know, Peter and Jesus are talking about the issue of taxes, you know, and and Jesus said, go catch the fish and pull the coin out of his mouth and give it and pay the taxes, right? That's prophetic, right? Jesus is like, there's going to be this fish. He's going to have coin in his mouth. And you're going to catch him. That's like a one-for-one one thing. The way that Matthew uses prophecy, he's trying to show uh, a parallel between the life of Jesus and the nation of Israel. And you'll get this point in just a second. It's kind of a parallel you know, this happened in the life of Jesus, and this is kind of like what happened in, in, in the life of Israel, in the nation of Israel. There's this parallel. It's, it's kind of like type and antitype, but not, not quite. So, and, so here we see the prophecy. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. All right, next question. What does it mean, out of Egypt? I call myself, what, what does that mean? I have two means there. So here again, we have to, oh, if you, turn, if you took off your thinking cap, or if you turned off the bulbs, turn it back on, sit up straight, listen up, adjust your thinking cap, because we need to dive a little bit deeper. All right, so we're looking at 
the prophecy given to us is from Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. And what does it mean? Why does Matthew use that there? Well, in the Bible, when we look at Jesus in his life, there were types. Adam was a type of Jesus. Jesus is the antitype. Adam was the type that kind of, it, it, he was the symbol that, that predicted or foretold the reality in Christ. Sam's talked about this in Hebrews. So we know that there was a first Adam. Adam failed, right? He was man. He represent, represents mankind. Adam did. He's the first man. Genesis chapter 1. Jesus is the second Adam, and he is the representative for all of mankind. He's the second chance, if you will. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. I'm not going to go there. You can look it up. I gave you that as an example. Because here in the text, Matthew is saying, the first son was Israel. The true son is Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's try to understand what that means. And I think if we look at the passages, we can. So, so what does it mean that the first son is Israel? What does that mean? Well, in Exodus chapter 4, we read this. God's talking to Moses. He says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son, referring to that last and final plague where the firstborn of Egypt died. But God refers to Israel as his firstborn son, his son. So the nation of Israel is considered God's son. And so in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, this is the reference for Matthew's quote in Matthew, out of Egypt I called my son. We read this in Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. Right, so... People, when they look at prophecy, they want this one-to-one. Like, really, Hosea is not really talking about uh, the people of Israel. He's talking about Jesus there. He's making a prophecy about Jesus when he's going to come. We can't do that to Scripture. And really what Hosea is doing here is he's talking about the rebellion of God's firstborn son, Israel. He's saying, look, I called Israel out of Egypt. They're my firstborn son. I gave birth to this nation, this son, out of Egypt. And they failed. They were miserable failures. But Jesus, no, Jesus is the true son. So we see this this parallel look at at Jesus and the nation of Israel. And we're going to see this uh, when Jesus is baptized as well here in just a second. That Jesus is the true son. In Matthew chapter 3, When Jesus comes out of the water, you're familiar with this passage. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven came and said what? This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Right? And the Son is going to go out into the wilderness and be tested, is he not? Right? Just like the nation of Israel went out into the wilderness and was tested. The nation of Israel failed in the wilderness. Jesus never failed because he is the true son. He is the perfect son. And so you see how, how, how Matthew was drawing this parallel between Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel. Okay, okay. I have mean there twice. 
Must have been in between uh, cold medications. Okay, okay, what does it mean? Out of Egypt I called my son. And again, like I've just said, I'm just trying to give some credibility to my statement here by quoting somebody who knows a lot more than I do. His name is Grant Osborne. He says this, Jesus as son is reliving the experiences of God's children, Israel. Okay, in effect, he's, he's, he's reliving those experiences. So we see the Egyptian escape. Now we see the insane infanticide. The insane infanticide. As you consider history, throughout history, there have been crazy, desperate, despotic, demonic leaders. Adolf Hitler, right? You guys, I probably didn't even put his name there, familiar with him. Over six plus million, some people say six to 11 million people died because of his leadership. We know the extermination of the Jews, but he killed a lot of, a lot of other people as well. On the other side of the line there was Joseph Stalin. Right? He was an ally of the United States during World War II. Meanwhile, he's killing off people left and right to, to consolidate his power. Up to 20 million people. That's if you include, it's not just people that he you know, had executed, it's people who died because you know, they didn't have food because of his policies, etc., 20 million people. And then in China, right? Mao Zedong, 40 to 80 million people. I can't understand the love affair of, you know, with socialism that the younger, younger people in our culture have right now. Socialism results in the death of people left and right. And people somehow romanticize socialism. Pol Pot was the leader of Cambodia, kind of a spinoff of Mao Zedong, 1.5. These are just ruthless leaders who were going to do whatever they thought they needed to do because their, their idea of society was the most important thing. And to keep power, to keep power, they had to kill their enemies. It wasn't uncommon in, 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 in the Bible to see this, right, that, that a king uh, would be, a, you know, a man would become a king, and what the, what's the first thing he did? He killed off all the family of anybody who might take his place. And King Herod was no different. Herod was no different, right? We looked at that last week. He drowned his wife's brother in a swimming pool. Forty-six members of the Sanhedrin executed, killed his mother-in-law, had his wife and two sons assassinated. He killed his sons if he, th- if he thought they were going to try to take his power. And then we see today that he ordered the murder of the infant boys in Bethlehem. We see this in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Right. So in his encounter with the Magi, when they visit him, he ascertained from them when they first saw the star, and then he calculated the time, the number of years, and he's like, okay, every child two years and younger, or male, needs to die. And then we see prophecy, right? So again, there's this narrative, and then he caps off with a prophecy. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's Jeremiah 31, 15. So when I read this, I remember reading it when I was first a believer, I was like, did Herod kill Rachel's children in Bethlehem? Why was Rachel crying after Herod kills the children in Bethlehem? Does that, and you understand why I would ask that question? Maybe you guys don't think the way I do. 
You still have your thinking caps on? Put it on. Why? Why did he use this prophecy? And, and, and really, let me just summarize it like this. So this passage in Jeremiah 31, 15, talks about the nation of Judah, we'll call them Israel at this point too, but Judah going into exile. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and took Judah off into captivity in three waves, as they left Jerusalem, as they went north towards uh, uh, Babylonia or Babylon, they had to walk through the city called Ramah. Rachel is the mother of the nation of Israel. So a voice is heard in Ramah of weeping, great morning. Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more. And so Grant Osborne says this about, he says, Ramah laid on the road the captives would have taken. So as Rachel was called the mother of the nation, she symbolizes the mourning of all the people of Israel standing alongside the road as the captives were taken off to oblivion. But if you read a little bit further down in Jeremiah 31, guess what? They come back. They come back from captivity. You know the story. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own line. So just as Jesus is living out the experiences of the nation of Israel and going down into Egypt, guess what? He's going to come back from Egypt. Just as the nation of Israel is exiled to Babylonia, Jesus was exiled to Egypt, and he's coming back. See why I wanted you to put your thinking caps on? Jesus would return, and there was a ready return from Egypt. That's the third point here. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. Another dream. This is three dreams, three prophecies. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So, he didn't waste any time, right? Honey, pack the bags, we're going. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went off to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So when Herod died, he divided up his kingdom. Three parts went to his sons, and then one smaller part went to one of his daughters. The kingdom was divided up. Herod Antipas, Archelaus was ruling over the area that would have been around Bethlehem, okay? That blue there, okay, I'm sorry, in the maroon. Yeah, the blue up in the maroon. Bethlehem would have been there. So he went further north to where Herod Antipas, who was more friendly, was ruling. And that's where he settled, up near Nazareth. And so the text continues. He says, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Right, so we know that uh, Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth, right? And they traveled down to Bethlehem. I guess the thought was they would go back up to Bethlehem after they left Egypt, but they couldn't go there, so they went back up to Nazareth because so was fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, one more time. This is the last time. Why? Why is this? Why is this? Because there is no scripture in the, in the Old Testament 
in the prophets that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. There's not one spot where you can find that. So, so what's, what's Matthew drawing on there? One, thing, one point I'd like to make here is that when Matthew quotes Scripture, he kind of quotes it loosely. It's kind of like me when I start quoting verses from the Bible. If you start checking my quote against what the Bible says, it's going to be close, but not exactly the same. The meaning's going to be there. But Matthew will combine different passages together. And then he'll just make this conflation of all these passages to say that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. But why? Why is it important that he be called a Nazarene? Well, at that time, if Israel was, you know, was the armpit of the known world at that time, the worst part of that was in Nazareth. Nazareth was the worst place that you can live. It was the Hicks. It was, it was where all the bumpkins lived. Nobody wanted to be from Nazareth. Yet that is where God sent Jesus to live. D.A. Carson says this. He's not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold the Messiah would live in Nazareth. No, he's saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised, despised and rejected, right? Isaiah chapter 53. In other words, Matthew gives us the substance of several Old Testament passages, not a direct quotation. Jesus was despised. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. The most despised people in the land were from Nazareth. Jesus was called a Nazarene. It was a derogatory expression. You Nazarene! Right? I I don't know, you may know this, Mo, over in uh, Iraq when they were marking the houses of Christians, they used the noon? Do you know anything about that? They used the noon to mark the houses? No, you don't know? Anyway, I read about that. The noon represented the, uh, the Nazar, the people of the Nazarene, and they would mark the house with the noon. I read that. I mean, it could be some guy making something up. Sounds good anyway. So, points to ponder. Points to ponder as we close. I have three points to ponder. And I'm, gonna, I'm resurrecting the points to ponder because I think this is good for you. Because if you had your thinking cap on for a long time and it's starting to feel uncomfortable, you know that we're getting close to the end here. So points to ponder. Three. The first one is this. Oh, well, actually, the point to ponder is coming in just a second. I just want to remind us of the divine providence before we lead into it, right? Remember, this, the point of the text is this. What? Is, so one more. God's providence will accomplish his plan of redemption. So we've been talking about God's providence. And you can see how God was interacting in this narrative of bringing an angel, giving dreams, protecting them from Herod, sending them down to Egypt, calling them back up, sending them not to Bethlehem, but up to Nazareth. God was intervening the entire time. Divine providence is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event of the world, and directing the things of the universe to his appointed end. So the first point to ponder is this. Just as God's providence orchestrated the life and the work of the Messiah, his providence will bring all of his elect to salvation. Right? Because the point is this. His providence will accomplish his plan of redemption. It didn't just end with Jesus Christ uh, dying sacrificially, rising victoriously from the dead. 
I mean, that's a part of his plan of redemption, but he died for those who would be redeemed. And so God's plan of redemption continues as the gospel is proclaimed. The truth of the message of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is proclaimed, and through that, his redemption has worked as people place their faith in Jesus Christ. It continues. So we saw very well that throughout history, God brought the Messiah into being, but we also know that God is continuing to save his elect through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, God's elect will be saved. God's providence is unassailable. Those who are chosen by God will be redeemed. Acts 13, 48. This is a light bulb verse for me. This is a light bulb verse. When I was struggling with the issue of election and sovereignty and man's responsibility, somebody showed me this verse and I was like, wow. Acts 13, 48. Paul's just, Paul has just finished preaching the gospel. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. There was a divine appointment that was, that was given before the foundation of the world, the eternal decree of God. And in his sovereignty, in his providence, he is bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ, those that he has elected, those who he has appointed for eternal life. Because God's providence is unassailable. There is an unassailable plan of redemption. Romans 8 reminds us of this. This is the golden chain of salvation. Those that he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified, redeemed, saved. Those are all kind of the same thing. He saved them. And those he saved, he justified. Those he also glorified. It's the golden chain of salvation. Because God's plan of redemption is unassailable. It's it's an unbreakable chain. It will be worked out. We think about this concept of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how that makes sense to us. We, we, can't, we can't wrap our mental wires around that to, to understand it. If you struggle with um, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, this is something that helped me out because you can't understand it with your, your, your own mind. So if it's a train track, and if you've ever looked at a train track and you're standing, it's a long straightaway, you have the two rails that are separate where you're standing, but as you look down in the distance, it's somewhere, it looks like they're coming closer and closer together, and somewhere they come together, and you, you know, you can't see it. So one rail is God's sovereignty, that he has planned from eternity past, he has decreed, and what he has decreed, he, has, he, has this, he is sovereign to bring to pass, and his providence is his working that out. But also we have on the other rail, we have human responsibility. John's gospel, believe, 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 believe. The elect are not redeemed apart from faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How that all works out in the mind of God, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. And I'll just give you a little uh, tip. Those who have it figured out usually become heretics. It's impossible to understand totally. But I've given you a, a spectrum at the bottom, right? You see that blue line? On one side is robots. People say, oh, if God is sovereign and he's going to redeem who he's going to redeem and the elect will be saved no matter what, then, then people are just robots and they're not making decisions. They're just, they're just doing whatever God tells them to do. Well, God didn't make us that way. 
We have the ability to make decisions, but the other end is complete free will. And, and what rules the day is free will. Free will is God. If, if man doesn't have free will, he doesn't have anything. And so it's up to man completely to either choose God or not choose God. And if he chooses God and then not chooses God, that's just what happens. I think we have to bow to Scripture. Scripture upholds the sovereignty of God and his choice, his election. It upholds human responsibility. And it's only through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ are we redeemed. So the first point to ponder is that God's providence has orchestrated the life and the work of the Messiah, and his providence will bring all of the elect to salvation. The second point to ponder is that God's providence includes the evil acts of humanity. So as we look at the text, this is hard for us to understand, right? Because you have some night in Bethlehem, very small town, maybe 350 people. I don't know how many two-year-old infants there were there. The people go to bed. They're tucking their kids in bed that night, right? They've had a nice meal together. They said their prayers. The kids go to bed, and all of a sudden they hear the, the beat of horse hoofs coming into town, and men are wielding swords. And the next thing you know, a woman is holding her dead infant in her hands, And God is sovereign? How do we work through that? Well, in the great wisdom of God, in the character of God, we know that God is love, that God is always good. God is never not good, friends. God is all wise. At the same time, God is completely in control. People say, well, God didn't cause that to happen. He just allowed that to happen. Well, if he allowed that to happen, he could have stopped it. Why didn't he stop it? And so where you have to land is that in the eternal decree of God, that he ordained that innocent, quote unquote, that infant children, young men, boys, would be killed at the hand of King Herod. He ordained that. Did he cause those men to do that? No, he doesn't cause anybody to sin. But the evil acts of men fall under the eternal decree of God, and they are worked out as a part of his providence. We see this clearly in the Bible, right? Joseph talks about this, right? The end of of Genesis. You you guys tried to hurt me. You you beat me up. You threw me in that pit. You left me for dead. You, You sold me into slavery, right? You tried to hurt me. You tried to kill me. You tried to harm me, but what? God intended that for good. To accomplish what is now being done, right? The line of the Messiah was saved. The line of the Messiah, the eternal plan of God's redemption, moved forward because Joseph was abandoned by his brothers and sold into slavery. That was bad, but it resulted in what? Good the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. The best example of this is in Acts chapter 2 when Peter's preaching and he's trying to to show the Jews like, you guys blew it, okay? You guys crucified the Lord of glory. You guys crucified the Messiah. Jesus was handed over to you. uh, Peter's saying to you would be the Jews, the Pharisees. Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The worst crime ever committed in history was preordained by God. God determined that his son would be crucified before the foundation of the world. And how was that carried out? By evil men. Evil, the acts of evil men fall under God's eternal degree, decree in the providence of God. But friends, do we trust in the fact that God is a good God? That he's all wise? That if it happened that way, then that was God's predetermined plan and that's the way it was supposed to happen and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work for the greatest glory of God and for our best good. This is, this is hard stuff to swallow. That's why I told you to put on your thinking caps today. So God's providence includes the evil acts of humanity. And lastly, God's providence includes every moment of your life. You know, sometimes when we think about the biblical narrative, you know, we think about you know, all the great men and women of faith, and we think about God working throughout history, and you're like, like I'm just like, I'm like a nobody. I'm just a face in a crowd. I'm just me. I'm just me at 3890 Prescott. Just me. Nobody. I know you guys are looking for him right now. He's there. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Just, you know, it's like the song by uh, Casting Crowns. I'm just a nobody. I'm just a nobody. going through life, the trials of life. You're just a face in the crowd wondering if anybody cares about you. But friends, if you're a child of God, whatever you're going through right now is from the hand of God for your good. God's providence is active in your life. Divine providence is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event of the world, directing not just the universe, but your life. Your life personally. I want you to think about your life circumstances right now and the difficulties you've been going through over the past year, maybe two years, even today. And maybe you think there's just it's, there's no sense to it. Like, it just doesn't make sense what's going on. How can God possibly be working out his plan in my life? This just doesn't make sense. You guys think that? I've thought that. But here's the truth that all Christians can claim. I can't give this truth to somebody who's not a believer. And you know this verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of what? Those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Those he called, right? Those he, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Those who, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, well, this is some kind of love, God, because I'm not feeling it today, right? You might be thinking that. But you have to understand that God has an eternal purpose that he's working in your life. It's in the next verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And God is determined. He's not determined to make you happy. He's not determined to make you feel fulfilled in life. He's not determined to make you feel satisfied at the job you have. He's not determined to make you have a good marriage. He's determined to make you like his son, Jesus Christ, and he'll do whatever it takes to get you to that appointed purpose. And he's constantly working to get you to that purpose. 
He doesn't just work in the big events of history. God is greater than that. God is completely concerned about your life and the big things, the small things, the good things, the bad things, your obedience, your sin struggles, your spouse, your kids, your job, your finances, your illness, your losses, your depression, your fears, your suffering, everything. If you're a child of God, it's a part of his providence in your life and it's a part of his goodness for your life. Because if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, then every single second of your life is ordained by God And so it's good. It's good. That's hard to swallow, but I don't know how to get around it in Scripture. God only gives good gifts to his children. God is working providentially to bring you to the point of being just like his son, Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, great author. I love everything he writes. He writes this book, Walking with God through pain and suffering. Some of it's taken from his book, The Reason for God. But he says this, Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all your suffering, all the suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. As John Piper says, there is not one millisecond of suffering in your life without meaning. Not one millisecond. And I can only say that to children of God. I can't say that to the guy on the street who hates Jesus Christ. I shudder for that person. Again, he took, that so that our, he took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. Friends, Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person who ever lived. And he, God wants you to be like him. And God has ordained the struggles of your life, every single one of them. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the disappointment has been ordained by God, and he's a loving father. God is concerned about you specifically. Right? I love it what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You. You. Imagine how powerful this was to the people who were listening that day, those people who had nothing, nothing. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And, and, and Jesus says, God hasn't forgotten you. I know you're hungry. I know I can see your ribs, but God hasn't forgotten about you. Has he forgotten about the sparrows? No. So he's not going to forget about you. It's the argument of the, of the lesser to the greater. Certainly. And that's why we read Psalm 104 today. If God is certainly going to feed the crickets, he's going to feed you. If God has a plan for the crickets, he has a plan for you. But it takes faith, right? It takes faith to believe that. Walking by faith. Faith is data. Faith is knowledge. Faith, faith, faith fixates itself on objective data. On objective data is this, is that God has redeemed you, and he has a plan for your life, and he is working in every single 
second of, that, of, that, of your life to get you to that point. You have to have faith, though. Do you have faith? God's providence will accomplish his plan of redemption, which includes you. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're going to sing a song uh, that's familiar to you. We're going to sing uh, Sovereign Over Us. It's a very good song. And it's drawn from Genesis 50-20, right? Even what the enemy means for evil, you work it for our good, right? I want you to think about the circumstances of your life now and the difficulties that you faced. And maybe, maybe you need to repent because in your heart you've been upset with God about the life that you're living now and the circumstances of your life, thinking that God doesn't care or that God is somehow not using it or God's not in control. How would you like it, parents, if one of your kids came up to you and said, you must not care about me. You must not love me. That would be painful, wouldn't it? God's sovereign love is ruling in our lives. We just need to submit by faith. So let's, let's sing this song as a song of prayer to God uh, this morning and give thanks to him for his providence and redemption, not only for the world, but for us as individuals as well.